King Jesus from John chapter 6 verses 14 to 21. We've just sung about the greatness of God and uh, just as we were singing, um, one of the great privileges I've had early this year in January, right in the middle of winter, is be out there in northern Norway contemplating the northern lights and God putting on a show so that I could stand there and just marvel at what he has done. And I know that uh, Nina and Steve have experienced the same. I don't know if anybody else has. And you just sort of wonder, wow, how great. And you did all this so that I can enjoy it, enjoy the wonder of your greatness. Now this morning we continue our series in John. We recall that last week we looked at the story of the happy male the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, which with women and children could have been 15,000. It is mentioned in all the Gospels. It is a story of how Jesus resolves the problem of the hungry crowd, not by sending them home, as was the suggestion of the disciples, but by multiplying a kid's simple lunch and involving his disciples to do the rest. Once they had their feed, Jesus orders that nothing be wasted, so they collected 12 baskets worth of food at the end of it. We also mention the parallels from that story and indeed this whole chapter with the book of Exodus. Now the story this morning follows on from last week and this story that we read this morning that we will look at is also found in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. But John's retelling of these events is somewhat different. While John is is brief, matter-of-fact type reporting, Matthew and Mark give us more details. They both tell us that Jesus instructs the disciples to leave him behind and go on ahead of him in the boat across the lake um, late in the day or even at night. Meanwhile, he retires to the hills, presumably to spend time with the Father in meditation and prayer. It is also Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, who tells us about the experience of Peter who wants to get out of the boat and for a very short period actually walks on the water to go to be with Jesus. John's version of events, like I said, is is rather stripped down because his concern is not so much to highlight the experience of the disciples but to focus all of our attention on Jesus. And the story builds up to a climax, the climax where Jesus identifies himself to the disciples in verse 20. So we don't want to miss John's main point by jumping too quickly to the other Gospels. But we will do that anyway. 
Now, in these verses here, they teach us three truths about Jesus the King. His retreat, his supervision and his arrival. That's three points we will look at. So first of all, let's look at his retreat, verses 14 to 15. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to make him him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. After witnessing what had just happened, it doesn't take the crowds very long, very long at all to join the dots. They've all been fed. Thousands have been fed, fully fed. And all sorts of ideas come into their heads. And there are political overtones when they start thinking, this is the king. This is the one we've been waiting for and he is going to overthrow the Romans and we are going back to the glory days of the nation of Israel. And their conversations weren't about asking him to be their leader, to be their king. They were going to make him They were telling him to become their king. If you read through the Gospels, you would realise very soon that Jesus wasn't much into crowds. So Jesus leaves them and says to them, implicitly, we can sort of read between the lines, I'm not that kind of king. I'm not here for worldly power. I'm not the king you expected, but I am the king you need. And this was reinforced, obviously, as he marched into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. This was reinforced as he was questioned by Pilate at his trial. And this was reinforced as he hung on a cross with a sign above his head. And one can understand the longing of a nation for a leader, for a strong leader, a deliverer. After hundreds of years under the yoke of Roman and other occupation as a nation, as a nation we understand that. We understand what it is to have a vacuum in leadership. How many Prime Ministers have we had in the last 11 years? Is it 20, 30? I don't know. Can't keep up. We we know what it is to have a political vacuum when PMs are simply puppets set up by powerful interest groups beyond our borders, behind closed doors, when the agenda of what is important and what isn't is decided by someone else. And this is supposed to be a democracy. Can you imagine what it's like under a dictatorship? Having said all that, must be must be recognised that we actually do get the leaders that we deserve. 
or most people's thoughts gravitate towards the temporal things, the material things, food, housing. Those things are obviously essential, but then they drift very quickly into lifestyles and happiness. There was an article in in the news.com site this morning that says, Australians are obsessed with being happy and it's making us miserable. And the article goes on uh, to describe what is the problem and one of the biggest problems is, is social media. And where did I find the article? On social media. Anyway, <laughs> no contradiction there. We, we have increasingly become self-indulgent rather than embraced what a generation or two ago they knew what self-sacrifice was all about. It's all about rights now rather than obligations. Obligations to the family, obligations to the nation. In all of this, little time is given to the things that really matter that which is spiritual, that which is eternal, that which is everlasting. Jesus would have nothing of it, so he retreats, he withdraws to the mountain to make sure that he is not distracted by any of this, but that his compass is always pointing in the right direction to complete his mission for which he was sent, which is to bring glory to the Father by atoning for our sins on the cross. His retreat. From his retreat we move to his supervision, verses 16 to 18. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into the boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. A storm arises, which is not unusual in the Sea of Galilee. If you ever get to to go there, you will see that it is surrounded by, by mountains and the Sea of Galilee is actually 200 metres below sea level. One of the valleys that traverses into the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, the valley goes for kilometres. It's actually a walk. You can walk in three days all the way to the Mediterranean. You head, you head west towards the Mediterranean and just follow all the way down there. But it's actually those winds from the Mediterranean that come across into that valley and then hit the the Sea of Galilee, which actually causes a lot of the problems when it comes to storms and winds and all of that. And so from still waters, flat as anything, suddenly these winds come and it becomes chaotic. And from where they were, from where these disciples were originally, the row back to Capernaum up, up the north was 
was merely they just had to follow the shoreline, not, not all that far, and they would get there. So it wasn't supposed to be that hard. And they, I suppose, the, the disciples expected to meet Jesus somewhere along the way. But he tells us that it was already dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. This theme of of darkness and trouble is often repeated in the Bible, isn't it? It's found in right throughout the Bibles, in the Psalms, the Gospels, the interplay of storm and darkness and trouble picks up the language of even a psalm like 23, though I walk in the valley of the shadow. It, it, it describes intense personal difficulty, even despair, despair at life itself. For example, Psalm 42 says, All your waves and breakers have gone over me. And then in Psalm 69 verse 2, I have come into the deep waters and the floods engulf me. So there's more to this than just John's description of a storm in the Sea of Galilee. It is a spiritual struggle here. In the darkness, you lose your bearings. You don't know where you are. Suddenly, you cannot see the stars. The clouds are over. The waters are roaring and foaming. Remember that these, many of these disciples were experienced fishermen. They made their livelihood on the Sea of Galilee. So, they must have seen stuff like this before. And John, the Gospel of John, is the last of the Gospels to be written. So Matthew and Mark would have been written a few decades before. So as, as John, when John wrote this, he almost assumed that everybody else who was already familiar with the Gospels and they almost expect us to fill in the details of what happened on that evening. Matthew and Mark both tell us that it was actually Jesus who made the disciples get into the boat in order to cross over to the region of Capernaum. Just think about this. They are in trouble through no fault of their own, but because they were obedient to Jesus. Yes, I know. I know many times we can get into trouble because we have been disobedient. But here the disciples get into trouble because they were obedient to Jesus. What that tells me is 
let's not be so quick to judge someone else who is in trouble because of a decision that they've made. We all have advice, don't we? You should have done this, you should have done that. It's the shoulda, coulda, woulda, right? And everybody comes around with their advice. It's like everybody sitting on the grandstands giving advice to the coach. Come on, put him on, take him off. Ah, come on. Everybody's got advice, one after the other. Don't be so quick to judge somebody else. And don't be so quick to blame yourself and assume you find yourself in trouble because you are outside of God's will. Don't assume that as well. Remember, you can find yourself in trouble just like the disciples simply by doing what Jesus tells you to do. Yet, some preachers will tell you, come to Jesus and all your troubles will disappear. Come to Jesus and you will have nothing to worry about. Happiness guaranteed. Well, not in this life. Because coming to Jesus and walking in fellowship with Jesus can actually bring you into more trouble than you ever had before. It was actually because Paul listened to the Macedonian call, the Macedonian cry, come over here and help us, that he got into prison, ended up in prison in Philippi. It was because they were obedient to God that Joseph and Daniel ended up in prison and in a lion's den. And it was because of obedience. It was because Adoniram Judson, 300 years ago, was obedient to Jesus that he went to Myanmar and lost one wife and lost a second wife, ended up in prison. It was because of obedience to Jesus. And you can almost hear everybody around the church and his friends and family and everybody else, see, you shouldn't have gone. You should have just stayed home. God knows when we get into trouble, the grumbling starts, doesn't it? Whose fault is it? What happened here? Moses through the desert, leading the people to the will of God. And the grumbling continued for 40 years. Who would put up with that? These disciples had been in trouble for quite some time, rowing for many hours, battling the wind, the waves, trying to stay afloat. They pushed further and further out to the middle of the sea. They are still there, rowing throughout the night, struggling, rowing, In all of this, in all of this time, as far as they're concerned, 
Jesus has done nothing. He is up there in the mountain. He's praying. He's having his good time, just making his coffee, his cappuccinos and, and all of that. And here we are struggling in the middle of the sea. As far as they're concerned, there is nothing miraculous, nothing out of the ordinary happening. It's just them against the elements. But of course, Jesus kept them alive. He was watching over them, as one of the Gospels tell us. He was watching over them. The words of Jesus in his prayer to the Father in John 17 are quite telling. In verse 12, this is Jesus praying to to the Father. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. And then in verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. What they could not see is his unseen hand of providence. He maintained them in the course of the storm. But he hadn't yet revealed himself to them. As far as the disciples are concerned, he was still in the mountain praying. Why does Jesus make us wait? Would have been a question, wouldn't it? What is he doing? And Jesus can make all of us wait, just like the disciples. It was, of course, a testing of their faith. He was testing their faith just as he's testing your faith and just as he is testing my faith. It feels at times that we are alone but we are not. In the darkness, in the darkness, he is watching over his own. Irrespective of whether you are in the middle of the sea, whether you're in a hospital bed, or whether you're at a cemetery saying goodbye to a loved one. Jesus is watching over us. Here is a poem. Out of the darkness, out of the dark forbidding soil, the pure white lilies grow. Out of the black and murky clouds descends the stainless snow. Out of the crawling earth-bound worm a butterfly is born. Out of the sombre, shrouded night, behold, a golden morn. Out of the pain and stress of life, the peace of God pours down. Out of the nails, the spear, the cross, redemption and a crown. His supervision. And then his arrival, verses 19 to 21. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat 
walking on the water and they were frightened but he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. One of the other gospel accounts of this story tells us that when Jesus eventually came to them on the Sea of Galilee, it was the fourth watch or or just before the break of dawn. And it was late afternoon, but it was still daylight when they had set off. They've been rowing all night. This tells me that sometimes we are left for a considerable period of time before the reassurance of his help comes in. This is what faith looks like for fellow believers in the scriptures, for fellow believers through history and what it looks like for us today. But the thing is that Jesus comes. And he comes to his disciples in the midst of the storm. In the midst of the storm, he comes. As king of creation, he, he could have stopped He could have stopped the storm from the mountainside, from where he was praying. From up the mountain, he he could see, even through the darkness, he could see the boat in in, in trouble, in the midst of the storm. He could see all of this. He He could have just uttered his word, calmed the storm, and stayed where he was. But instead, he walks in the middle of the storm to be with his disciples. Now, if these seasoned fishermen were not scared of the storm, seeing this person walking on water in the middle of the night would have frightened the living daylights out of them. Our fears, it would have been like totally unnatural, supernatural. It was, it was obviously their conclusion was it was a ghost. But ghosts obviously don't need to walk on water. The fears. Our fears. That's a big topic, isn't it? Our fears, they start when we're young, don't they? They usually, when we're young, our fears are usually strangers and monsters under the bed. As we grow older, we trade monsters for mortgages and children and the circumstances all around us. And we look to the socio-political landscape and fears increase. The fact is that there is so much around us that can make us afraid. We're always facing the fears in our lives. And yet the Lord comes. The Old Testament prophet Nahum, he said this, The Lord whose way is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Nahum chapter 1 verse 3. Jesus comes through the night and through the storm and over the waves as as Yahweh, the great I Am. The King and the Lord of creation has arrived. And as Jesus, I'm going to focus on that because as Jesus arrives at the boat, Jesus tells the disciples, says, it is I, do not 
be afraid. And, and that declaration probably you just skip over it, don't think about it too much, but it is actually the climax of a story. The Apostle John is, is doing something quite extraordinary here because he's, he's weaving the, the majesty of God, the Creator, through the story. And, and he just follows the theme that starts in Exodus. In Greek, the words are ego aimi, ego aimi, which translated into English means I am. And these words appear again and again in the Gospel of John. The significance is that ego aimi are the translations, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the personal name of God which was first revealed to Moses in the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3. Moses asks, what shall I tell the people is your name? And God tells them, tell them I am has sent you. And here the great I am has come. Fear is confronted with these reassuring words. It is I do not be afraid. He's saying that which scares the living daylights out of you, this strange form appearing in the midst of the sea doing what is absolutely impossible for men, that's me. The very things that oppose you, the very things that you struggle against, the sea, the winds, those things that are out of your control, I have overcome all of that. I have those things actually under my feet. I am in control of these events. Therefore, there is nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. And this whole incident is a classroom for the disciples. It's designed to teach them the resources that they have in the Lord and after he is gone in the risen Lord. Jesus with us in the very circumstances that we find ourselves. He is triumphant. He is in control. He is the Lord of all those circumstances. He is the hidden resource that we need for life itself. It is available to you and me each and every day. Some final thoughts. In the multiplication of the miraculous, of the loaves and the fishes, In that event, Jesus foreshadows the sacrifice which he would make of his flesh for the food of the world. More on that later in this chapter. In the terrible night of darkness and separation which followed, he gave them a foretaste of the more painful and real separation which would follow his death. And now in this unexpected and triumphant return across the waves through the storm, 
he prefigures his glorious resurrection where he would walk across the closed doors and declare to his disciples who are there gathered together and say to them, peace be with you. Jesus sends them into the storm. Jesus comes to them in the storm. Through the Gospels, the invitation is to come to Jesus. Here, Jesus comes to the disciples at the right time. Jesus delivers them and Jesus delivers us safely to shore at the appropriate time. That is the Jesus we worship. That is the Jesus that is with us even now. And that is the Jesus that we will welcome back one day when the King of Kings returns. Amen.